Welcome to Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Guy Cipriano. We're continuing our Tartan Talk series by having a conversation with Steve Smyers. Lots of good golf course architecture and agronomy topics here to unpack with Steve, including his work at Indiana University. And full disclaimer, Indiana is the alma mater of this podcast host. Steve also discusses the five years he spent on the USGA Green Section Committee and his work studying and using many different varieties of turf grass. Before we get going with Steve, we'd like to thank Better Billy Bunker for supporting this podcast. Better Billy Bunker is not only a big supporter of the American Society of Golf Course Architects, Better Billy Bunker supports a number of industry efforts, including the work of golf course superintendents. Glad that they're on board, and we're glad that Steve was able to take some time to join us. Well, Steve, thanks for joining the podcast. The first thing I think we need to discuss here is that there hasn't been a lot of professional golf in the last two months, but there have been some tournaments played in Dallas involving players from a number of tours, including the PGA Tour, and they've been played at a place called Merido Golf Club, which you know very well. Tell our listeners about Merido and these events that have been taking place there in the last few weeks. Yeah, Guy, thanks. Uh, yeah, Merido was, uh, for us, a very special project. We had a client that's very, very passionate about the game of golf, and when we started first started talking about the project, what his dream was in 2011. You know, we didn't finish the golf course till 18, 2018, but, but he said he wanted to find a piece of property that was, uh, you know, located close to Dallas that people could get to, and he wanted to build a golf course for people to be able to, to host championships, to go out and compete that would attract the most elite players in the world and, and some of the most elite championships in the world. And uh, he has developed a, a facility. We've got two full-time, very competent golf instructors there uh, that stay busy. We've got a list of uh, elite players that are constantly going there to, to work on their game. And our mission statement there was to, if you play and compete on this golf course, just by, by playing and competing on the golf course, it will make you a better player. And uh, he's attracted a lot of good players there. And uh, with the with the epidemic that was going around uh, and, and the lack of competitive golf events, he decided just to put on a couple events uh, to as a fundraiser for the caddy program uh, at the club. Uh, his first event uh, attracted a lot of uh, PGA pros, uh, Corn Ferry Tour players, elite amateurs. Uh, both mid and collegiate players and junior players, and it was so successful he decided to do it again two weeks later, and it was held this this week um, and uh, just just finished yesterday. And I was there, and it was very interesting. We had he invited the most elite junior players uh, in the country, elite amateurs, had mid amateurs, uh, PGA Tour players. Corn Ferry Tour players, Latin American Tour players, Canadian Tour players, and he put them all together. So you've got a, a, a 15-year-old uh, high school kid playing with a PGA Tour pro, and the camaraderie and the uh, competition was uh, was really, really something special. So, uh, you know, he's given back to the game of golf, uh, and it kind of kicked, kicked off the season a little bit. What st- struck you as fascinating 
about the event and the competition and how it was played and what did you learn about your your, your golf course when you were there well i mean we we built a stern test of golf we knew it um and that was the goal and the desire and and stern doesn't mean unfair stern just means you know we we wanted to promote uh good ball striking and good good uh, course management uh I think that uh, the the one thing that I took away was the passion that these, number one, how good these kids are. And I'm talking about the next generation of players, just how good they are, how athletic they are, the knowledge about uh, how to swing the golf club, how to get the most out of the club at such a young age. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're, they're optimizing their, not only their golf swing, their golf equipment, and how to maneuver around the golf course. It just It just struck me how far along that aspect of the game they were than, you know, two generations ago, basically. Uh, and then I think the other thing that we're still learning is, uh, you know, I think that uh, design, you can have a design, but the course setup has to match the design and the conditions of the golf course. Uh, so I think that we're we're learning from, from that as we go through. We're going to host the Southern Amateur uh, in a couple months there, and uh, another big college tournament at the end of the year, then the USGA Ladies 4-Ball will be there, and they just announced an, a real nice junior tournament as well. So I think the staff and ownership, and even myself, we'll learn a little bit uh, how to maybe set the course up uh, a little bit uh, uh, you know, with a little bit more variety and a little bit uh, better better for the competitive field that we're trying to attract you know the golf course uh, dallas is a windy uh, part of the world and the golf course uh, the site is open so it does have a fair amount of wind uh you know we built the golf course with tremendous flexibility in the length of the course so one day we could play a golf hole at 500 yards uh par four and the next day we could play it down to 320 so we're just trying to figure all that uh, the best way the best best way to uh, keep one stimulated and make it a good stern fair test of golf at the same time. You were a member of the USGA executive committee and you were involved in a lot of USGA championships during that that time. What did you learn about course setup through that experience? And flexibility in course setup is a term that we maybe didn't hear 30 or 40 years ago that we're hearing about more and more today. Yeah, I think uh, you know. I think uh, you know when I when I first got on, Mike Davis was a longtime friend, and uh, who who was the uh, course setup uh, in charge of championships at the time. Uh, now as executive director, but uh, we would we we discussed through Mike. You know, he said, "Wouldn't it be neat if a, to kind of keep the touring pro keep their attention uh, if we had a par three, for example, with a." Uh, you know, that one day would play a couple hundred yards and the next day would play down 140 yards, kind of kind of a hole within a hole concept. And that was George Tom, Thompson's, uh, Thomas's uh, concept when he built Los Angeles Country Club, to build a hole within a hole. So we kind of embraced that. Uh, Mike embraced that with the USGA, and I kind of, kind of embraced that through our design, um, through setting up for championships. So you always keep the player a little bit off balance and, and really have, make him kind of to, uh, to uh, strategize his, way, his, his or her way around the golf course. Then I think the other thing is it's uh, because of the uh, 
when you set up a golf course for competition, you kind of want to be on the edge, but you never want to go over the edge. So it's very important in setting up a, a tournament competition uh, to understand how the ball will react uh, coming out of, uh, you know, rough is a very integral part of the game of golf. And, and, and unfortunately, when people think of rough and USGA championships, they think of high, unforgiving rough. But if the rough comes to the equator of the golf ball, just off the fairway, if it goes to the equator of the golf ball, then that greatly diminishes the spin that an, an elite player can impart on the ball. So the ball will, you could catch flyers, you can catch, uh, you know, balls that might dive bomb and roll long ways. So you're asking, the, and so you're looking for the ideal height to cut to not make it punitive, but to make it where the player can, if they drive it in the rough, where they can get to the get to the green, if it's a two-shot hole, but also that the, uh, they have to be able to anticipate how the ball is going to come out and how the ball is going to spin. So that puts a it puts an emphasis on driving accuracy. Then the other thing is, I think it's real important to understand the firmness and texture of the putting surfaces that you're developing for the championship. As long as as well as the green speeds, uh, and then and that all correlates with the amount of wind that you're predicting for that championship or that site or that particular day. Uh, you know, the windier it is, the more benign setting you want for a green for a hole location, and you also want to make sure that the slope uh, is the slope the percentage of slope of the putting surface matches the uh, speed of the of the greens. In other words, you don't want to have a, a, a steep slope with very, very fast greens. Now you can, you can uh, with slower greens, you can put it on a steeper slope. So you just have to match all that up. And that is very, very important. A lot of great golf courses are not uh, brought to the forefront when you, uh, for championships, are not brought to the forefront if you misstep on a, design, on a course setup. And uh, you know, and that's very easy to misstep on a course setup as well. It's it's a lot easier than you think. Steve, during your work with the USGA committees, I believe you you served as the chair of the USGA Green Section Committee, right? I, I did. Yes. What was that experience like working with those agronomists and the superintendents that the USGA Green Section has helped? Well, I got to tell you what I learned a lot. I, and and it's one of those things. I was I was a chair, but I really was the was the the head listener of everything. It was between the uh, all the USGA agronomists and the turf research that we did that I w- was able to learn a tremendous amount. And I actually applied that to to our design because each different grass uh, will change the playing characteristics of a golf course, and it will change the aesthetics of a golf course as well. Uh, so uh, I think that that was something that I, I learned a lot off of. And we go back to Merido. Uh, my client bought an existing golf property, which we basically shut down for three years uh, to re- reconstruct, the, reconstruct the golf course. The first year, he, he kind of kept it open, and we took uh, four different type of Bermuda grasses, 
to basically beta test those Bermuda grasses, how that would do on that particular site. And I think that that was uh, a big learning curve for me. And, of course, we had a client that he wanted to do something like that, and I was all for it because we wanted to choose the best grass that we thought that would be not only for that site but for the type of clientele that, uh, that he wanted to attract there. How has expanding your knowledge of agronomy helped you as a golf course architect? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. I, as a, as a uh, teenager, that's how I started off in this business. Uh, all my, I was on the high, uh, high school golf team, and, and they were recruiting workers for the golf course. So the uh, superintendent there recruited all of us on the golf team to go out and rake bunkers. This was before the sand pro. I'm dating myself now, but, but and we and before automatic irrigation, so I I started off in that side of the business, kind of learning about golf that way, and then uh, kind of worked my way through college, occasionally working on a on a golf course. Uh, and it, I think that as you're designing golf courses, you have to. It's all about maintenance. It's all about maintenance, so you have to make sure that. Uh, what you're building is maintainable, and the type of uh, uh, soil that you're you're grassing, build, building your golf course on, is something that uh, your superintendent can grow grass on. What and, golf and course? It, it was guy. It's an interesting. The place was Sharpstown Country Club in Houston, Texas. Mm-hmm. It's now a um, it's now a public golf course, but it was interesting. We moved to Houston. And we, uh, my family moved to Houston when I was a teenager, and uh, and I first watched Lee Trevino play golf there before he got on the tour, which was interesting. And uh, when we built Merido in Dallas, Lee is actually a member at Merido, and he, uh, like I said, my client bought an existing golf course, and Lee's first day out of the Marines, he worked up helping to build that golf course as a laborer. And uh, we'd, he'd come out and watch us build. He'd say, watch that. We'd pull a pipe out of the ground. He said, watch that pipe. I'm the one that welded that together. <laughs> so, so, but I watched him play at Sharpstown, and he, and, you know, he, he became famous with hitting a nice little cut, a uh, little fade as a golfer, but he hooked his way around the whole golf course back then. And he said, yeah, he used to, before he got on tour, he used to hit big sweeping hooks. So you did something that a lot of people weren't doing in the 1980s, that's when you started your own golf course architecture firm. What right. were some of the challenges of getting that started at, at that time, Steve? Well, I always tell people if I'd known then what I know now, I would have never done it. Uh, my ignorance was my best ally. And I got very, very fortunate right out of the box. Um, I built a, a, I, I built a golf I, – I met a, a gentleman whose desire was uh, – he was kind of like the predecessor of the fellow, that, the gentleman I built the golf course for in Dallas. Uh, he wanted to build a very uh, challenging uh, uh, club golf course in Indianapolis, just outside of Indianapolis called Wolf Run. And that was my first big break. Uh, you know, his brief to me was, I want to make it a, a real challenging golf course. So since then, I've built golf courses for municipalities, public golf courses, executive golf courses, and everything. But that one golf course kind of labeled me as the guy that builds, you know, challenging golf courses. But that was uh, that was a good break. Uh, from there, 
I was uh, my wife is from Australia. How we 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 went down to Australia to visit her family, and I just happened to stumble upon a project down there, and, and ended up building a golf course in Australia. Then ended up building one in England, and it just kind of uh, you know been stumbling around for the last thirty years building golf courses. What agronomic advances have been the the biggest in the last thirty years since you've been doing this, and how have they affected golf course architecture? You know, I tell you what, Ed, Gary Player made this statement, and I totally and completely agree with him. Uh, everybody talks about uh, the equipment, uh, the, the equipment, the biggest, you know, the the, dry, the titanium drivers, uh, the evolution of the golf ball, things like that. The biggest change in the game of golf is is what we call what I just basically say is the lawnmower, and how we're maintaining golf courses. And I'll give you this as an example. When I got out of college uh, and started working in Florida for the architect I worked for, your average golf courses, the putting surfaces were mowed at a quarter of an inch three times a week. The fairways, is very, very common to mow the fairways once or twice a week at, at one inch height to cut. Uh, up north, the fairways were bluegrass fairways. They were converting the fairways in the 80s. They were bluegrass. They were an inch height to cut. And they were mowed uh, tw- maybe twice a week. So just converting from bluegrass fairways to bentgrass fairways, mowing the fairways three to four times a week, uh, and then the putting surfaces, which were only being mowed, uh, you know, once a week, or uh, I'm sorry, three times a week at a quarter of an inch, lowering the height, that height they cut down to, uh, you know, 125. A quarter of an inch is 250. So uh, cutting cut that in half, uh, it greatly altered uh, how we how we play the game of golf. When I did Wolf Run in Indianapolis, which opened in 1989, I was kind of one of the leaders, you know, first people to put fairway around the green. And the idea was to to uh, you know allow people options around the green because we always had you know two inch roughs around the putting surfaces. So we lowered the height, so we put bent grass around the greens. Well, we never maintained the bent grass low enough for my liking back then because you'd still, you know, the best the best shot was just a pit shot uh, with the sand wedge back then. Now they've mowing it, the, those areas so tight, it's very difficult for most people to get a wedge under the golf ball. So now they're just putting it from, from, off, putting it from off the greens. So the the evolution of the lawnmower and how we maintain golf courses, I believe, has changed the game more dramatically than anything else. You know, back in the old days, and I use this as an example, Nick Fowler went to Ben Hogan in 1992, and he said to Mr. Hogan, he said, Mr. Hogan, I want to win the U.S. Open. My goal is to win the U.S. Open. What do I need to do to win the U.S. Open? And Hogan looked at him and says, well, shoot the lowest score. And he said, well, I understand that, but what is your advice to me to shoot the lowest score? He said, well, driving it in the fairway is is most important, but you never know what type of lie you're going to get in the fairway. So if you have a left hole location, you want to be on the right side of the fairway and kind of vice versa. And Fowler looked at Mr. Hogan, and this is 1992. He said, Mr. Hogan, that's the way players played in your day. In today's world, the fairways are so pristine, 
your goal is to get it in the fairway. And your lie is going to be so good that you aim for the middle of the green. If you have a left hole location, you aim for the middle and you hit a little draw, little draw. Or with a right hole location, you hit a little fade. So just that that uh, little scenario kind of demonstrates how the game has changed. Changed from Hogan's error to Fowler's error. And in today's world, the fairways are that much more pristine. The, the equipment... The equipment, everything in golf design and and golf uh, club construction has evolved because of course maintenance. It's not the other way around. Course maintenance has has dictated everything. So the clubs that the manufacturers are making now, uh, with the tight lies in the fairway and the firmness of the green, everything is designed to get the ball up in the air and to spin the golf ball from the fairways. As far as the putting surfaces go, Mike Shannon, who was the, who's kind of one of the uh, putting gurus, he's now at the TPC in Jacksonville. Uh, a few years ago, he put together a little presentation on the evolution of putter design, putter construction, and the putting stroke in relation to the introduction of turf grasses and the inter, and the introduction of of uh, of uh, maintenance practices as well. In other words, the height to cut of the greens. And to sum it all up, in the year 1920, putting surfaces were mowed at three-quarters of an inch. And the loft on the putter was 11 degrees, and the stroke was basically a wrist stroke. And then through the years, the the uh, the, uh, uh, the height to cut was lowered and lowered and lowered, and the loft of the putters went from 11 degrees to 6 degrees to 4 degrees. Now, and it started in 1996 with Tiger coming on board and the introduction of the ultra dwarfs, uh, Bermuda grasses, and the finer bent grasses. The putting stroke has gone from a wrist and arm stroke to a big muscle stroke to a club to a putter that has effective 2 degrees of loft at impact. So depending on the individual, but it's basically down to two degrees aloft. So the 11 degrees aloft on the old days, in Bobby Jones' days, when he first started playing, that was a it was like a like a chipper to chip the ball to get the ball up on top of the grass to get it rolling. Now now you want to just produce more of a a roll. So that is uh, that's kind of the evolution of the game in a nutshell, based on the evolution of maintenance practices, introduction of turf grasses, and the introduction of uh, maintenance techniques. How do the lower mowing heights and increased green speeds that we're seeing today affect what a golf course architect can do with green design? Well, you know, this is kind of a real interesting scenario right now. I am currently working at our club in, in Tampa, Old Memorial Golf Club. Uh, we are redoing the greens. Uh, we we haven't really touched the greens since opening in 1997, uh, and we're just going in and redoing the drainage of the gravel and everything like that. Uh, we are designing the greens. I, with the membership in mind and everything, I'm working closely with the superintendent that we are trying to design the greens to start off at a ten and a half or eleven during the golf season. The grass will grow through the day, so they'll slope about a foot through the day. But I'm trying to relate all the slopes on the putting surfaces 
to mirror that type of speed on the greens. If we, if we, in, in, and so we have X amount of hole locations that we can use on the putting surface based on that green speed. If he desires to, and the membership desires to speed the greens up to say 12 or 13, we know where those hole locations will can be, but that strictly severely limits the amount of hole locations that we can use, fair hole locations that we can use on each putting surface. So we we have to be much more attentive to uh, strategies. Uh, slope of greens and things like that based on based on the modern day green speeds uh, you know and then as, as far as height to cut and the fairways go and everything like that uh, there's a happy medium there because the tighter the fairway the more elite player can, uh, can, can, can nip the golf ball and can spin it but the higher handicapper has a real tough time getting the club underneath the ball to get give it any height to it so uh you know it, it's all a balancing act and i'm trying to set a standard and actually work with the superintendent and come up with a manual for year to, years to come on how to uh you know maintain the golf course in relationship to the design that we're doing you mentioned earlier in the podcast that when you were making decisions for merido you studied four different varieties of bermuda grass not with that project in particular, but with all your projects in mind, how do you make decisions about what turf grass variety to go with? How collaborative are those decisions? And, and how difficult are those decisions in places like Texas that can be considered a transition zone environment? Well, Texas was was difficult because it was a transition zone environment. Mm-hmm. But to make the decisions, you work closely with uh, the owner, the golf course superintendent, and even the consultants that are out there, the turf consultants are out there, uh, and you banner around ideas and what what is going to be best for uh, that, not only for that site, but the type of clientele that you're trying to attract. I think uh, a real good example was the Indiana University golf course that we're hoping to open within the next couple weeks. We work closely with uh, with uh, Anthony Robertson, the superintendent, Greg Bishop, the general manager there, to select not only the turf grass for the for the fairways, but also for the first cutter rough and the outer rough. And uh, that is the proposal is that for you know that is going to attract daily fee play, and uh, in that environment there in Indiana, it can get very very hot in the summer. So your uh, your uh, inputs. Your fertilizers and chemicals at times can be very, very high with your cool weather grasses. So the decision was made to use Myers zoysia to sod the fairways with Myers zoysia, uh, and that would dramatically cut back on inputs: water, fertilizer, chemicals, things of that nature. And uh, and uh, they through the analysis they said we can pay for the sodded zoysia. We can pay for it uh, over a six-year period based on the uh, lessening the, uh, the inputs that we need to put in, the cost of the inputs that we need to apply to that. So that, uh, you know, every project is different. Uh, it's not only based on the climate, the environment, but the clientele that you're trying to attract as well. Was that your first zoysia grass project? 
we've used zoysia. Well, we we had some zoysia at Old Memorial on some of the teeing grounds to begin with. We were trying it out. But I would say, yes, that is our first total zoysia grass project. Yes. How curious are you to see it in action? I've I've played a lot of golf on a lot of zoysias. Zoysia has a very good purpose in a lot of places. I think the playing characteristics that I'm looking for in most cases, uh, I, if, in like in Texas, would be a good example. We looked hard at zoysia grasses there, but we decided that the playing characteristics of a, some of these new Bermudas, we, we preferred those playing characteristics. Now, having said that, I know they're producing a lot of zoysias right now that I've got my eye on, that seem like could be a very, very good grass moving forward. But uh, we just wanted the playing characteristics in, in Dallas of the of the Bermuda grasses, but I think the playing characteristics of the zoysia over the bent grasses in, in, uh, in Bloomington will be superior. So a certain golf writer, editor, podcaster has played a lot of golf at the Indiana University golf course i'm an iu alum i remember playing the old course uh it's a great piece of land there in southern indiana and it's not what people would think with indiana land uh tell our listeners about the foul course at indiana university for for those that aren't familiar with it and what has it been like working there over the last few years well you know that uh that has become a very special project for me Uh, and i'll tell you my very first project was in indiana it was a place called Wolf Run, and my client was an IU golfer. I played on the golf team there in the fifties. He played his claim to fame is he played against Jack Nicholas. Uh, he he ended up yeah, being Jack would have been at Ohio State at the time. At Ohio State at the time, exactly right. Yep. And Tom Weiskopf and, and and a lot of great players. So Val Hall in Louisville was about to open. We were up in Indianapolis, so we drove to Val Hall and played golf there right right as it, it opened. Uh, a good friend of ours was was involved in that, and uh, we were driving back. And he says, "I want to take you by the IU golf course." He said, "It is a fabulous piece of property." So we uh, veered off the interstate, and this is 1988. We veered off the interstate. We went to the golf course, and my client was a bigger than life personality. Had a great personality, and uh, they saw him pull in the parking lot. They came running out. They said, "Hey, Doc, we're getting ready to redo our golf course." It's been a long time, but we're getting ready to redo the golf course. Well, 30 years later, I got to redo the golf course. But So the sales cycle in our, in our business lasts a while. But it, it was an ideal site for golf in the Midwest. The topography, the movement of the topography, the interaction between different landscape settings. You had wooded settings. You had open settings. You had settings that were uh, in the open but had a very nice edge of, of – uh, a forest edge around it, uh, and it, it was on a very large piece of property. And it had about six or seven what I call power points to the property. Uh, and what I call a power point, um, you kind of think in these terms, if, if they were, if you were to, uh, if, 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 if everybody were to be dropped off on a piece of property on a, by a helicopter, and they were to tell you to walk, just walk the site, there would be certain places that you would automatically gravitate to. They would be uh, the convergence of environments. They'd be high knolls, uh, you know, promontories, things that commanded uh, dynamic views. 
and there would just be certain places that you'd naturally want to go to. Uh, so we went out there, and I kind of identified those places, and I took uh, the superintendent and the general manager out there with me. I said, hey, guys, uh, what do you think about this area? How does this feel? They said, well, it feels pretty good. I said, would you build your house on this place? Would you? Would this be a good place to build a house? They said, yeah, this would be an excellent house, place to build a house. So then I said, well, if you're sitting there, where do you want to go from here? Well, we want to walk this way. And they would point, and we would walk that way. And that was kind of the routing that I had in mind, but I was testing them to see the most comfortable journey around that property uh, and where where they'd want to congregate to and where they would want to not congregate to. So on the powerful settings, uh, I would take... Uh, maybe two, three, or four holes that would converge on that one powerful setting. In other words, two teen grounds and two two areas where the greens would be. And so that we would constantly take people to those places and take them away from them. And the topography, and that was kind of the, the foundation of starting the routing of the golf course. And then the topography was such that we utilized the topography. We, we were able to move very little dirt in contrast to our Merido project, uh, which were, we, we removed millions of yards of dirt. We moved very little dirt in uh, conforming the golf course to the property. And the strategy then emanated out of the, the landforms of the property and the movement of the property. We're probably going to lose all of our Purdue University listeners by talking about something at Indiana University this long, but, but this is a great project. Steve, when you're designing a golf course for a university, there are a lot of different factions to consider, right? They're the men's and women's golf teams. There's the the donor, the athletic department needs, the general public needs, the student and faculty needs. Yeah. H- how did you balance all those d- divergent groups on this project? Well, you know, that's, that's you building a very, very interesting question there. You know, I've always said, you know, when you, when you, when a golf property grows up, they got to figure out what they want to be. So one of the, you know, when we sat with the university, they mentioned all those things. That's what they wanted to appeal to everybody. But it was very important for them. They wanted to be able to host the NCAA championship if that opportunity came to us. So we had to build for basically the most elite player in the world. And then we had to go all the way down the the, uh, the chain. And, you know, uh, you had a lot of people, a lot of professors in that area that are still around, love the game of golf, that are very, very elderly. So we paid special attention to how we would maneuver each and every individual group around the golf course. It was not only through teen ground placement, but it was I designed within a golf hole several different landing areas to based on the uh, on the on the skill level or teen ground that people would use. For for example. You know the elite players. The 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 say we were to host the NCAA or a, uh, uh, you know an event of that nature. You know uh, we would design the golf hole with a, a landing area in mind for that particular player because we were going to ask them to hit a certain length shot into the hole. If we utilize that same landing area for the everyday player, they couldn't get to the green. So we would design multiple landing areas in relationship to the teen grounds that we were proposing throughout the golf hole uh, to allow everybody to get around the golf course. We also did not 
where there's only one forced carry on the entire golf course, and that's the very last hole. We had a little stream that we were going to deal with, and we we perched the perched the green up in the hillside there. Uh, but what we did there, we we put the forward tees well over a hundred yards ahead of the competitive tee, so to speak. So the elite player would be hitting a driver long iron in, where the uh, everyday player would be hitting a driver and a short club into that green. So we very much considered each level of player and what each level player would be looking for in the golf course uh, to to end up designing that course. We basically uh, basically every green on the course is open in the front as well. So multiple teeing grounds, multiple landing areas per hole, and uh, and greens are very very much could be uh, be attacked along the ground. You know, there's a lot going on. This was a project that. Heck, the way you described it was a few decades in the making. It's Indiana University's bicentennial. We're in the middle of a, a, a pandemic still. What are your emotions going to be like when you see people playing this golf course for the, for the first time? Well, we're going to be happy. We're going to be happy. We're going to be thrilled to death. And, uh, you know, my, my I'm going to try to get up there within the next 10 days to kind of give it the final once over there. Uh, but we're uh, they've got some, uh, you know, they're going to open it up. I, I know there is a very interested group of alumni that are going to be interested in going there um and we had some neat people behind the project uh you know ned fowl uh one of the major donors there one of the nicest men you'll ever meet in your life uh loves the university his best friend is fuzzy zoller and fuzzy was involved in the project uh he's very passionate about it and then the way i got introduced was my good friend spider miller who is two-time u.s mid-amateur champion uh IU grad, uh, two-time Walker Cup captain, uh, and uh, very influential in business in that area. Uh, and Spider's background was he worked his way through college working on that golf course. So he worked his way through college working on the golf course, and then he kind of helped uh, orchestrate how to uh, the entire project. So I've got a lot of old friends there, a lot of great people there, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be a uh, a nice occasion when we when we open it. And then when you look at what's going on in in the back half of this year in December, a golf course that you were very close to as a teenager and where you really learned the game, Champions Golf Club, is going to be hosting the U.S. Women's Open for the first time. Tell our listeners about your experiences caddying at Champions Golf Club as a teenager and what made that experience at that particular course so special for you. Well, you know, Champions is. Uh, you know, it's, it is one of America's, one of the world's great golf facilities. It really is. Uh, you know, I, when my family moved to Houston, I was involved in all sorts of sports, but I, that, in that day, they, there wasn't much of it in Houston, and I kind of gravitated to the golf course and uh, became a pretty good junior player and got to know Jackie Burke's son, John, pretty well. And they were constantly inviting me out to the golf course. Of course, Jackie Burke's partner was Jimmy Demerit, two of the best and most colorful golf golfers of their generation, the 40s and 50s. And Jimmy Demerit's best friend was Ben Hogan. And uh, one day I was invited out to play to watch Ben Hogan hit golf balls, and I was just a teenager back then. Uh, watch Ben Hogan. Well, it was Jimmy Demerit, uh, Jackie Burke. John Burke and myself watching Ben Hogan hit golf balls, and uh, that left a huge impression on me. 
as far as golf goes. Uh, and then later on, they hosted the uh, U.S. Open there. And and so somebody said, well, you ought to go sign up because the USGA won't allow their full-time caddies. So I signed up, and they I, they selected me to caddy, and they pulled the name out of the hat, and I got to, I got paired, uh, I got to serve as Miller Barber's caddy, and Miller Barber was leading the U- U.S. Open after three rounds. He had a three-shot lead over Orville Moody, and of course, uh, Miller kind of stumbled on the 12th or 13th holes, uh, and Orville Moody uh, kind of hung in there. And he ended up winning his only golf tournament, the U.S. Open of Champions which was a great ball striker's course, and Norval was one of the greatest drivers of the golf ball. And then uh, the next year, Ben Hogan was out there playing in the Champions Tournament, and I went out to watch Ben Hogan play, and that was his last competitive round, and he hit his last. I watched him hit his last competitive golf shot there. And what was ironic about that was that he hit his last competitive golf shot on the 12th tee, at champions, he was not having a good round. His knees were hurting him really, really bad. He was in his late fifties. But uh, he, Jimmy Demerit, asked him. I said, "Mr. Hogan, who do you want to play golf with?" He said, "Pair me with that little Mexican Lee Trevino." He said, "He's the only one out here that can really hit a golf ball." <laughs> and I think that uh, if I look back, I've watched Lee Trevino hit balls through my whole career. I'd, I'd say that those are two of the arguably two of the best ball strikers that ever lived. You know, they, they of their generations, they were two, definitely the best ball strikers, but I think even in today's world, they would be considered amongst the absolute best. So let me get this right. You were 16 years old caddying for a player that was winning the U.S. Open by three yeah. shots? Yeah. On, in the yeah. final round? Did you even realize what the magnitude of the moment was? Well, I'll tell you an interesting story uh, with that. Uh, yeah, I, I knew how important it was. I really did. Uh, the best score I'd ever shot in my life prior to that U.S. Open was 78. I never played any, but it was the best score I've ever shot. The following two days after the U.S. Open, there was a junior tournament in Houston on a course called uh, Bear Bear Creek, I think was the name of the course, I went out and shot seventy sixty nine in the tournament, won the tournament. So that that obviously had a big impact on me. It was kind of interesting. I'd never shot any better, better. I'd never shot any better than seventy eight. And in the next two days after the open, I go out there, I hadn't hit a ball in a week, and go out there and shoot seventy seventy sixty nine and win the tournament. So you worked golf course maintenance and as a caddy growing up. Do you think you would have all these incredible experiences in your life if those weren't the two jobs you picked as a child? Well, the whole game of golf. It's not only that as an experience, it's just the game of golf. It has enriched my life tremendously. Well, I think that's a great way to end it. Thank you, Steve, for joining this podcast. This was a lot of fun. Uh, Can't wait to get out to the Indiana University golf course soon and, and, and see your work. It sounds great, Guy. Thanks for having me. It was, it was a lot of fun.